0: Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for reliability people to better themselves, both at work and at home. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, I welcome on Don Doan from Symphony Azima AI to talk about using machine learning to optimize processes. We talk about using supervised machine learning and why we still need human operators. If you haven't yet, check out my website, robsreliability.com, and sign up for the weekly reliability newsletter with bonus content. And if you like the show, please tell your colleagues about it and follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn. I've been putting out some fun memes lately, so I hope you guys enjoyed those. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, email me at robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now a message from Upkeep. Do you want a better reliability program? Do you want better data quality in your CMMS? Well, having frustrated and overworked shop floor people isn't the way to get that great reliability program. Often we make our mechanics, millwrights, and operators do paper rounds and then transcribe that information into a desktop CMMS. This causes more frustration and will likely lose data quality in that process. So why don't we try something different? Upkeep Maintenance Management is different. It's a mobile-first CMMS that takes the work out of work orders with its easy-to-use mobile application. With a snap of a picture and just a few keystrokes on your mobile device, you can update work orders in a matter of seconds. Upkeep is a mobile-first CMMS designed to be easy for your maintenance personnel. So easy, it was voted number one for ease of use by maintenance teams. Rob's Reliability Project has partnered with Upkeep to not only give you a great mobile first CMMS, but also if you purchase an annual subscription, you get one month free and a bonus one hour free coaching call with me. Make your reliability program better and make your tech's lives easier by going to robsreliability.com slash upkeep and sign up today. Hey guys, we're back. And this week I'm here with Don Doan from Symphony AI. Don, how are you today?
1: I'm doing well, Rob. How are you?
0: I'm great. It's, uh, I have, obviously it's, it's Monday. It's August 5th. We actually, it's family day here in Edmonton. The weather is beautiful. It's a great day. How's everything in Houston?
1: Well, it's Houston. It's uh, south. We call it South Calgary at times. Uh, the weather's hot, humid, and expected to be that way until the end of September. But I got a swimming pool, so all's well.
0: <laughs> in Houston, that might be year-round.
1: Nah, it's just uh, about three months out of the year, and then we get the best weather. Of the year. It's sort of like being in Hawaii from about end of September until May.
0: That sounds nice. So, Don, you're the technical content product manager for Symphony Azima AI. And if anyone wants to check out your website, that'd be AI dot com. Don, do you want to give us a little background about yourself? How did you get your start in maintenance and reliability?
1: Yeah, I got my start in the U.S. Navy uh, as electrician, sound petty officer, uh, spent eight and a half years in the United States Nuclear Navy, and then I went on to work in the utilities as a reliability engineer, uh, where I was a Category 4 vibration expert. I got my post-Navy degrees in double e- as an electro- electrical engineer and a uh, master's in mechanical fracture analysis. Uh, that's because stuff doesn't break electrically. It's either a chemical or mechanical failure, and plus that I was doing vibration. Uh, after a while, I went to uh, I left the utility after 24 years and went to Smart Signal as a, which is an advanced pattern recognition or multivariant analysis company. Uh, stayed there for three years and then GE bought us, and as advanced, um, I was the advanced analytics manager for three years and then I moved on to Meridium, where as an asset consulting, asset management consultant for Meridium for. Couple years and then GE came and bought Meridium and I moved on from GE about a year later to go to work for Symphia uh, Zima and AI, where I am the technical product manager for uh, taking information that is required in the field to sl- solve problems and having the data scientists and engineers in the programming space and the analytics space give real solutions to the end user. That's kind of my background in a small nutshell.
0: (laughs) No, that's a pretty comprehensive. And so, you know, on this show, we've spent a lot of time talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning, at least applied to sort of the predictive maintenance or the equipment level. And one thing that you guys mentioned when we were talking before the show was that you guys do it on the process optimization side. And it's one thing that a lot of, I've I've spoken to a lot of experts in AI, and they've said that the value is really on the process optimization side. So do you guys want to give us a little introduction to that? Like, what is process optimization?
1: We have uh, three pillars of uh, space that I've believed in for over 30 years, where you have uh, component health, which is the traditional uh, predictive maintenance side of space. using PDM technologies, vibration, thermography, oil analysis, tribology, ultrasonics, that look at the condition of the components supporting an asset. There's asset health, which has been around since around when the computers got good enough around the end of the 1990s, early 2000s. And then you take those two pieces and you have a very good foundation for condition-based maintenance. On top of that, where we are also focusing right now is on asset process health and process optimization. Uh, It's a little bit different space because you're looking at system behavior versus an asset behavior and how those systems are put together through uh, using different technologies. And we can talk about those if you have specific questions about how that happens. But it is taking the new um, supervised uh, uh, artificial intelligence, but supervised artificial intelligence and machine learning to help optimized plant
0: operations. So what does that look like? Like, I'm sure everyone, like we've spent a lot of time talking about, you know, oil analysis, vibration, thermography, but when we're looking at the process data, like what type of data are we looking at? What are we actually optimizing?
1: So what we're optimizing is a process. So I can give you an example where, uh, say you have an ammonia plant that you're um, going through and you're doing the condition kind of, you're doing the classification of the ammonia. And part of that, there's a CO2 component to it. Well, that CO2 component, it's easy to monitor a, a uh, evaporator tower or a uh, heat exchanger. But if you look at the overall process, you have got to look about the front end and the back end of the process. When you look at those process parts, there's a lot more equipment involved. And one of the things that happens in an ammonia plant is you have, may have uh, CO2 foaming, which is caused by too much uh, CO2 being added in, or too much CO2, or not enough cooling in the heat exchanger prior to the processing. So what you do is you look at all the so model predictive controllers. I meant model. So you have model predictive controllers around each asset and control valves and those spaces that kind of optimize the behavior from a uh, OEM space around that a asset or a set of assets with control valves. We take in a complete system. We put advanced process control on top of the, the uh, model predictive controllers and help give feedback to the operators where they can optimize the system on either, any of those MPCs, where you can optimize the throughput, not to get into a place that would uh, adversely hurt the equipment below it, but it help put <coughs> throughput through the system by about 1% to 2% per a year also be able to catch changes in behavior in the process that would cause a unit trip or a process trip, which CO2 foaming does. If you get CO2 foaming in an ammonia plant, you're going to trip the unit offline. So if we can get advanced warning on that happening by the performance of a heat exchanger going down due to fouling, we can intervene, we'll derake the unit for a little bit, do a washout of the tubes, and bring the unit back up without losing all your production due to a trip.
0: Now, are you introducing sensors to the system, or are you just using what's already, like most plants already have a bunch of sensors they're fed into, typically it's a PI database?
1: Yeah, we uh, typically use a a, a database where the sensors are already there, because when you look at plant optimization, the plant typically has all the stuff they need to do to operate that plant. So if I look at an ethylene furnace, let's say it already has all the sensors in place for the control valves for the furnace through the maintain, you know, the minimize the dwell time of the, uh, of the uh, product coming through to make sure you get your olefins out the back end at the right distillate without over cracking them. So, all those instrumentations are already there. What we do is we make sure you optimize it to make sure you get the right dwell time when we're talking about an ethylene plant on the product going through the tube. And making sure it doesn't stay there too long and it stays the right time. Now, they've already optimized a lot of that with other controllers, but we look at all the control loops together to get a, historic, a very good tell. Say they, they're starting to go from naphtha over to natural gas and they have a big change at the front end of the system, we can adjust the furnace to make sure that it the operator's... Now, we don't feed back into controllers. We can, but typically it goes to the operators to give them advance warning that they need to do a change to optimize for next different uh, front, end, back end, front end conditions coming into the system so that they don't lose productivity. They may go down a little bit, but they won't have to shut down the, the unit or bring the unit way down and restart it back up with a new product. So it's just a, it's a different way of looking at it. You're looking at a very high level. Place where you're optimizing controllers, where the data is already available from uh, the either the DCS, uh, distributed control system, or from localized uh, uh, SCADA systems.
0: Now it seems like you should see not only a throughput increase, but also better product quality. Well, Rob, is you got it. Thank true? you.
1: Yes. I don't know what else I can say that is the that is the true statement the whole idea right is to quality and throughput without adversity affecting the the process unit you know so one of the things that most um, OEMs do is they set their their uh, model predictive controllers in a conservative state the reason why they do that is they don't want to take on the, you know, the point where you're pushing the controller or the process through and damaging equipment or could be in a dangerous, con- you know, into a very hazardous condition. Because we always think of, you know, safety of the people, safety of the environment, and safety of equipment. And safety of the people and the environment are pretty well tied together, and safety of the equipment underscores the whole thing. So when you use uh, advanced process controls on top of this space, we want to go in and make sure that we can, first off, look at the system. See what's happening and then optimize it so we get the highest performance with the highest quality within expected safety boundaries. But we we know we can, and we've done this many times, where you can push that process up 1% to 2% throughout the system, looking at each controller as you go through, without actually endangering the system or, or, or stressing the system, as long as you stay within the boundaries of the controller.
0: Now something that I would be thinking about is the training kind of the training of the machine learning models. Like for me if I was looking at how to you know approach this type of thing, I would want to tweak like I would want to keep most of the system consistent and then tweak each I guess controller or each portion of the system individually to see how the rest of the system responds. Like how does that training process look?
1: What we do training in our uh, process optimization space is through the uh, what we typically do, uh, and should and it should be done by anybody doing this is that you you set your model up that takes in the MPC data, then as we talked about the, the mo- we talked about before the model predictive controller space and your advanced process control space. We set them side by side. We train the model on the historical data, if there is some available from the client, using our uh, using data scientists to understand the process space. So the big thing about um, any of this uh, artificial intelligence space, it's got to be supervised. And what I mean by supervised is you just don't have data scientists building it. You have you have ex uh, uh, you have domain experts helping you build what that model should do and what you're trying to analyze and how it works. So that's our approach is using SMEs and data scientists together to come up with boundaries around an asset. So when we're training the model, we're looking for normal behavior. We work with the clients, with their experts, because their domain experts know their process the best and come together with a model that represents the behavior they are trying to control. or They think they can get more throughput. Like we had a, um, a, a application where we're doing a crushing of a stone in a gold mine and we sat down with the uh, controllers because uh, the whole thing about gold is processing material through and when we looked at that process what we did was we optimized each part of that, the crusher the ball mill and the slurry at the end. So we went through the whole process and looked at each a optimized, uh, optimized loop and then we brought the data in and ran it parallel where we gave the operators a chance to see where they were operating at and where the model predict our advanced process control optimization said where you could adjust the front end, the what the different NPCs to get the best throughput. And then they took and started taking that data off of the model and started applying it to their mill. And as they applied each area, like you said, you don't go out there and hit the button you know, and initiate, we have, we feed back to the operators a band of where they could optimize their processes at each MPC level. And they went in and adjusted each one of those through a, a two, three-week period after we trained it. So this is about five to six weeks in, and they got the throughput up about two and a half percent over where it had been before. So if you think about crushing rock for gold processing, the two to two and a half percent increase is a lot of, of ore and also is a lot of profit back to the companies. So that's how we do it. That's how we train the models. And we, I've always said uh, artificial intelligence is a supervised, it's not really artificial intelligence, it's a sur- supervised machine learning uh, algorithms and uh, neural networks or uh, multivariant modeling.
0: Now, one thing I think people might be concerned about is Do you ever like? Do we ever lose the need for operators, or is this something that you're just using to give recommendations to the human operators?
1: Well, I I think you you know if we have if I didn't speak too fast, that's our whole model. Is that we're not trying to replace the operator because you need the operator to be in there. Um, MPC uh, model predictive controllers and and APCs are uh, your advanced process controllers. Uh, the problem with them is that if you leave it to the machine, you'll be never meeting uh, the production goals you want to meet. They're always going to be conservative because a uh, software by itself cannot predict all variables out there. I don't care how good they are. They can look at a lot of them, but I can tell you a story, which I will in a second, where that can get you in trouble. But the thing is, is that uh, the humans are there. We feed back an operating envelope for each of the m- machine uh, model predictive controllers for our advanced process control system on how to adjust each one so the operators have control of their system. So we don't see replacing operators. We see it augmenting the operator's ability to get more throughput. But they're ultimately there to make sure that that machine, that process op- is r- – running correctly and they're not endangering anybody and that they keep an eye on it. So I never see, I do not see in the foreseeable future it completely being automated. I mean, we're not looking at sending a a um, missile into space. We're looking at a, you know, which can be very hard, you know, like SpaceX or uh, Blue Horizon or the uh, different missile uh mo- rocket launches around the world, they can be automated simply because the predicted path and where it's going is very small domains that they are. They have to worry about, wind shear and Earth and gravity, and that's about it. We're in the center of mass, where we're looking at multiple, many, many different inputs, where it takes a human at times to be able to intervene and control that process. So I never see getting rid of the human in the uh, complex industrial operating systems.
0: So let's hear that story. So, I mean, like a few times we've talked on this show about, you know, for me, the biggest thing that I've talked about is when I've kind of tested my own machine learning models is that they don't have logic that even the most, like, let's say you just hired, you know, some kid out of high school, they would understand at least basic logic and machine learning doesn't. So, do you, what's your story on that?
1: So we, uh, <clears throat> in my past life, we put in a, a uh, we went from, on our big steam turbine, we went from a mechanical, electrical mechanical control system that was an analog system to a digital control system for that turbine. And before we started this process, it was a one, about two year process of putting the equipment in side by side and about a, a 20 20-day outage to connect it up and then about 10 days to test it. And before we started that, we had a very good lecture from a guy from Rensselaer Polytech Institute said, during testing, there's a thing called digital chaos. When you take a digital system, and if you want to test every input to every output, it's 2 to the n minus 1. Of all the inputs. So let's see it pretty simple. If you have two inputs, you only have to test it, you know, two times. But if you have two to the 10, you can see quickly how fast this system changes, right? It can get up to, the, well, in this system, it's like two to about 800, 800 inputs. So there's no way you can test all that logic. So what happened was <clears throat> we were starting this turbine up. And it was spinning up and it get up to its run it it'd get up to its running speed and sit there and then when it go over to automatic control to start putting when we start putting load on the turbine, um, it'd trip every time. So it'd go from running and it'd trip and running and it trip. So we went in, said what the heck is going on? Why isn't this system coming up? And after about two days of troubleshooting, go back to that not being able to test every digital device inputs and outputs. The when they were wiring in the uh, control valve that for overspeed of the turbine that locks in when the turbine goes to uh, go those load control it uh, there's a solenoid that dumps the control valve oil out of the controller and every time they'd go back when the machine got up to go up into load zone that valve would energize well it's supposed to energized to go shut and they had twisted the wires at the at the valve so as a dc valve so they twist the wires and every time they got to that point it initiate that solenoid and the solenoid would open and dump all the oil out so there's just no way in my world that was just one there's many different issues that happened during that that's just to me that there's no way in a digital world that you can write this software that can solve all the problems you can't even troubleshoot them all so there's always going to have to be an, a a human or person around looking at that. Now, it can, you know, artificial, you know, these machine learning systems with uh, you know, uh, the um, supervised machine learning systems, they can help and retain uh, that knowledge that's walking out the door. There's a lot of people of my age and that are, you know, starting to leave the industry, both in petrochemical. Uh, in the power generation and utility side, and those you know, these machine learning systems can gather that knowledge, but they—they, they, I don't think, ever going to be to a supervised, unsupervised state. When they get to unsupervised state, uh, I don't there are always going to have to be some supervised knowledge of that system. I think it's a great learning tool for the new employees that are coming in. It allows them to get into there and and uh, have a little bit more confidence when they go in the field. I remember the first time I was in the field, I was scared because I had no one to back me up besides the other uh, electricians around me. And at times they weren't there because I was doing a job and they had jobs to do. So that supervised learning and having that available is a, uh, I mean that uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning are very valuable for the, the 21st century worker, but there's still going to have to be some uh, – there's going to have to be some buzz support out there.
0: So, so Don, you know, I, and it's one thing I do agree is, is with machine learning is like people have to be a little bit careful, right? And, and I do definitely agree with you that supervised machine learning is the way to go. But I do think that there's, I mean, there's a lot of companies, not a lot, but there are some companies out there that typically they say something like, give me all your data and I will run it through my machine learning and I'll give you an output and I'll tell you how to run your plant better. Now, what what drawbacks do you see to that approach?
1: Well, it kind of ties on to what I said when I was talking about that uh, turbine control valve testing. Uh, yeah, you can give them the data and let them run your system, but um, I, I, and there's a bad example, and it's poor Boeing had to do with it, right? Under uh, 780, uh, 737 maxes. Software can only do so much, and the expected inputs have got to be right. If the inputs change on that process that go outside the boundaries of that process, uh, limitations of the software, uh, you cannot really predict what the response is going to be unless you've tested it. It goes back to the how many, that digital testing part, how you really can't t- test everything and you need to have a supervised control, so... I go the same way in process control systems. Yeah, you can give them the data, and yeah, they can automate it to where the advanced process control tells all the model predictive controllers exactly what to do. But if one of those controllers has a, a hiccup or if one of the sensors goes offline in an unpredicted way that wasn't in the model, then you could overdrive your process or you could trip the unit or you could put it in an unsafe condition. So I'm always gonna say, in my world, that there's going to have to be some kind of monitoring process by a human that understands the the process itself in the system. There's going to, I mean, you're going to have to do that. It's the same thing with airplanes. I know autonomous cars are coming in person to be driving without them, but there's still going to have to be some human in there to make critical decisions because no matter how well you do, you cannot predict a failed instrument on all different aspects of a digital system. You just can't test all the spaces. There's billions of lines of code in these systems, and you really cannot predict what's going to happen without human intervention at some point.
0: Yeah, and that's something I heard on actually on the Joe Rogan podcast was they had Lex Friedman on, who's an MIT researcher, and he was saying that, like right now, the autonomous vehicles – at least the, the cars that are on the road, they make a mistake. I think it was like once every nine miles. and But the, the drawbacks are people, I guess they almost sleep at the wheel. So if you put this thing into control, you assume it's, it's perfect. And then you don't really pay attention anymore. Do you see that happening with operators in a plant?
1: They could. That's why we don't, uh, you know, we do not take over control of systems. That's why we have the operators, when we give our consultant and and, and do work with operations, is that we give them control of the system by manually adjusting the set points on the model predictive controllers or give suggestions. We don't tell them what to do. We give them bands what to do it in. But that way they have to still monitor the system. Uh, unmonitored systems uh, can cause All kinds of problems. So when I had earlier when I talked about SpaceX and Origin and uh, NASA and Israel uh, and India and China, they have hundreds of engineers monitoring all their systems all the way through the flight and in in each of the five critical areas they can can, uh, stop the flight in the air in case something goes wrong. That's the most advanced engineering we have in the world. And if they have people monitoring every aspect of that operation to be able to uh, abort at any time, I don't understand how we think that we can take a process system that has less instrumentation and has all different ages of aspects of equipment in there that has model predictive controllers on it and think it can go to automatic. Even in the greenfield, brand new plants with a lot of automation there's still going to have to be someone who understands the process because of all the hazardous uh, uh, processes that are going on, especially in your petrochemical plants and your refining plants and upstream, downstream, midstream, uh, power generation stations. There's just so much stuff in there that could go wrong that could cause environmental personnel and uh, equipment issues that it needs to be a monitored system with – Experts monitoring that process. That's my opinion.
0: So, if someone is listening to the show and they want to start thinking about applying machine learning at the process level, like how should they start?
1: Well, how they need to really think about it is first off to make sure that they have, uh, you know, the they have a good understanding of their process, that their their IoT people and their i it people. Uh, come to understand where the data is going to be coming from. Is it going to be coming, you know, where, what network is off the instrumentation network? Is it off the business networks where you can use a historian process? How fast do they want the process to operate at? So they should start with defining out a business case for doing it. Now, the business case, of course, is one to two and a half percent throughput of a plant, which is a lot of money on most of these plants over a year. So the whole idea is to focus on, one area, what you're trying to do, how you're going to improve that process and what their internal investment is for you. At that time, then they need to engage with, you know, the, the experts out there that are doing this and come up with a, a, uh, a uh, I call it a pilot. You can call it anything you want, where you take one of the subsystems, you go through the advanced process control uh, or machine learning uh, control of your um, model predictive controllers run them side by side, make sure you understand what they're doing and what they're telling the operators to do. Make sure you're operating, you know, that the, the all the NPCs are operating within their uh, safe zones of operation. Uh, like I said before, your OEMs typically push it back towards the conservative side, and with APC you can move up towards a higher throughput or higher process rate without actually getting into a point that is degrading the equipment below it or making the system unstable or unsafe. Um, after they've taken and done a you know, one of those AP, one of those systems and looked at it and validated it, then they need to go back through and do a system re- uh, review, find your bottlenecks, see if APC and your bottlenecks will improve that bottleneck, apply it to the bottleneck, and then start working out from the bottleneck to increase your productivity that's how i see you do it it's a very should be very methodical an engineer i'm an engineer so i would it'd be a very methodical approach but i'd first engage with a, uh, a knowledgeable uh, entity where they take data scientists and domain experts sit down with the, your own domain experts and review what you're trying, what a system would be, and how you'd go through analyzing that system and coming up with advanced process control. Anytime a system, a OEM or someone else comes in and says, "Hey, we, we'll do this for you. We know how to do it. i will put it together for you," I would uh, I'd raise the red flag. My process engineers and operators need to be involved with the review of that advanced process control system that is going to go in place.
0: No, absolutely. And I think that there's, I mean, not only the fact that you have the operators as their experts, obviously, in operating your plant, but there's also the cultural buy-in aspect that you're going to need to get at some point. So if you have them in at the beginning, you're just going to further that process as well.
1: Yeah, that's correct. I always like to say, since I've been doing, uh, well, you know, machine learning, Supervised machine learning since uh, 2004, uh, what I have seen is that it is really not – so when you talk inside an industry, especially oil and gas, they call them management of change is when they change out or upgrade a system. But there's change management, which is the human side of it. If we forget that humans are involved in this process and it really is the operators and maintenance people and the reliability engineers that own this stuff, we uh, it will never be successful. So it's the human aspect. That's why we they should be engaged in the beginning, get buy-in, and, and agree that this is something that would help increase the product throughput and make their jobs a little bit easier by giving them ideas of where the process is going and what actions they should really take to keep that process optimized. Now, say there's a runback or there's a uh, a, uh, a um curtailment in the system, how, what's the best way? What NPCs should I gather in first? Even though the EPCs are going to do it, which ones do I want to control to make sure my system doesn't go unstable and I have to shut the plant down on a D rate or whatever has happened on the upstream side, uh, downstream side?
0: Now, what mistakes do you see people make that, like when implementing, like let's say they're going to be implementing some machine learning capabilities, like what mistakes do you see people make? And how should we avoid making those mistakes
1: i think the mistake is is uh <clears throat> that that the um is probably is mostly on the uh, on the executive sponsor level it's thinking that the uh the implementation of this is going to help them uh you know automatically fix everything right it's a go- it's a silver bullet there's no silver bullets out there we all know that and so the first mistake is they make is it's a silver bullet. It's going to solve this problem in my company. Uh, like we just said before, you know, it's the human side that you have to solve when you put inside these advanced process control systems. So um, the mistake they make is not having that human side thought out as they go through the process, and not engaging the right level inside the company. So. Uh, to do this, you just can't do it as a uh, cost center. So I'm a plant out in the middle of Arizona somewhere or New Mexico or Panhandle of Texas or in Egypt or wherever you are in the world, India. You cannot take that cost center and have them go off and do what they do willy-nilly without an executive sponsor. Because so, what I've seen happen is usually a champion at a plant level or a unit level gets evolved and owns that system. And when that champion leaves, that system no longer brings value to the company. So that's the first mistake I see is having a champion driven. It should be executive sponsored and be part of an overall culture or thought process of the company as you do this. Um, the second thing is expecting that uh, when you first put the system in, you're going to get all your money out and, and hit all the numbers. That is not true. Just like in, I'm sure you've had conversations in asset health side. Sometimes it takes a while for you to get the optimization set right to get your throughput. So thinking you're going to have instantaneous return tomorrow is not what you do. You got to wait six weeks to a few months, you know, to a few months to see, can I maintain this optimization space? Am I actually performing it? You will get there. Well, we've proven it time and time again. It's just You've to have patience in the system. And the third thing I've always noticed that people make a mistake, and I wish I knew how to correct this, yeah, all the way from component health, which we call condition-based maintenance, to uh, machine health, asset health, to process system health, and up to process optimization. If it's not part of the plan a day of operations – either on the operations management or on the operators in, that are in the control room in the field, if it's not their daily part of their daily input, you know, and that's not part of their job, if it doesn't land on operations desk, it's destined to die a slow death because operations doesn't buy into it. If it's owned by operations or it's reported into operations because they're the ones that are ultimately responsible for the safety of the people, the plant and the equipment, right? And they're responsible for throughput. So they have all these pressures on them. It's really got to be uh, operations focused after you get it, the system validated and working. And that's one of the biggest mistakes I've seen in the industry for 40 years is that uh, operations is considered a customer instead of actually the rest of us being the You know the Operations is not thought of as a customer. They're just thought as a person that gets information from us and they can do whatever they want with it. But when operations becomes the customers of these systems, that's where it becomes part of their um, uh, tribal knowledge. Believe it or not, it's still, even advanced process control has tribal knowledge into it. Why did you do it? Why is it put there? How does it happen? That has got to be in the operational space, and then if it doesn't there, it will, it will linger and work good. And then the next, as the money uh, dries up, or a next CFO comes in, or if, uh, the the economic climate changes, that system will uh, languish and go away. If a champion dies out, or leaves, or goes on a different job, so to maintain health of the system and advanced process controls, asset health, component health, it's got to be on the operations desk somehow. Some way.
0: So, just to kind of clarify, if operations isn't leading it, who's typically leading it? Like IT departments?
1: Uh, typically, who's leading it is process engineers and uh, the one that will be leading it and the reliability side of the company. and they typically talk with operations, but it's not owned by operations. And what I mean owned is not operations is paying for it. I mean that operations feels like they have an ownership of that process and they're getting, uh, they're getting, uh, return from that process that makes their job easier and improves the process throughput while maintaining the safety of the personnel and environment. Um, many times it is, like I said, it gets stranded in some space. Now, if, uh, advanced process control will live in the operation space. There's no doubt about it. But there's a lot of pieces that tie into there. You know, your OS, your, your historian, your vendors for your MPCs. they are all typically not owned by operations or maintenance, uh, craft, or engineering, right, that feed into their system. And operations needs to know that Hey, if I control, if I change this advanced process control limit for these different um, model predictive controllers, well, how's that affect the equipment? And should you know, how do we tie this all together? So it should be a uh, it's all a change management. It goes back to the earlier topics. talked about it's all about change management and getting everyone's buy in. But operations has got to really be the focus of where all this technology ends up in a very condensed fashion to them to be able to make sure they produce at the best cost, at the lowest, at the highest fee, uh, throughput rates that they can maintain without affecting their equipment.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I, and, you know, it, it always seems to come back to culture and change management, right? Like, to me, that's the true silver bullet. Now, there, it's, it's not as easy as just saying, like, hey, we need to do culture better, but it's, that's that's the way to get you know, better, better profitability, increased safety, the whole bit, right?
1: Oh, oh yeah. That's, it's definitely it. Cause, um, you can sit there and, and initiate a program for safety or for, uh, we have a, one of our company slogans is, you know, safest throughput, you know, not my company, this is hypothetical, you know, safety first, uh, you know, cleanliness, whatever you want, you know, five, 10, usually should only be three, but most companies have five to 15 things. They are the, you know, culture, they, they can write it down, but culture really is about when I'm in the plant, back when I was a vibration guy, I started off with a big, huge, uh, uh, chart recorder and a little needle that went up and down on it and took that out. When they first handed me a, uh, a single channel data analyzer in my hand, I was like, okay, what do I do with this? You know, I think I can just go use my stethoscope and get better data than this thing can without understanding what the technology was doing. And then I had, you know, then the culture change was, you know, you go through the five stages of grief with changes in culture. And we gotta be able to identify those and help the people move through those. But I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's all about Making sure it's about the people, not about the equipment. If we think it's all about the equipment, then we're you're gonna lose in the long run.
0: Absolutely. And and that's something that, you know, we think about and especially when we talk technology, we talk about artificial intelligence, machine learning, is we forget that it's even the further we come with technology, it's still there's still human interaction with the equipment, whether that's the guy who changes the oil, the guy who does the maintenance, the guy who operates it, it's still somebody out there, and we can't forget about them and what they're doing.
1: Nope, sure can't. So um, kind of back to this whole thing, when we're talking about advanced process control, it does have a human element. It uh, The machine learning or artificial intelligence is a supervised system because you are changing and moving process product through quicker. So, the operators have gotta the people who are gonna be controlling that process have got to have awareness that this is not a silver bullet, but it will improve the profitability and maintain the safety of the personal environment a lot better than without applying a process optimization process
0: perfect awesome so Don you know i wanna i wanna thank you for coming on the show now before you get out of here, do you have anything to plug? Are you gonna be at any conferences? do you have any other, you know, should they check out your website? Should they follow you on LinkedIn?
1: Well, I, I am going to start posting on LinkedIn. Uh, they, We will be at different conferences throughout the year. Uh, right now, we have just uh, merged with uh, another company. So the, as you know, Rob, the marketing places, we're trying to figure out where we're going to be. I will be at the um, as a part of the walk around, I haven't got any lectures going this year, but I will be at the uh, uh, the Texas AM Turbo Machinery Show this fall in Houston, of course, uh, this year. And we have a couple other uh, shows we're going to be doing this fall. Uh, I, bet, I believe it's the SMRP meeting in uh, Tennessee. Uh, but really this year, we're just trying to get the company uh, all the transmit information done. They can look at me on LinkedIn. I will start being posting some uh, stuff around uh, artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning, supervised systems, uh, the asset health space, process health, which is a system health model, and then process optimization in the near future. So they can look at me at Don, you know Donald Doan at LinkedIn.com. So
0: yeah, so if you're looking, if you're listening, you're looking for Don's LinkedIn, just check the podcast notes or he'll also be tagged. If you came through LinkedIn, he'll be tagged in the post as well. Um, if you're looking for Symphony's website, it'd be symphonyazimaai.com. So symphonyazima, com. So check those guys out. And then, obviously, you mentioned that you would be at the – are you at the SMRP in Louisville this this fall, September?
1: Yeah, I've been SMRP for many, many years, so I I try to stay in there. And I kind of – when I went to Meridian, one of the reasons I went there was one of the big SMRP uh, uh, advocates was uh, Paul Casto. So that's one of the reasons why I went to Meridian. And, you know, Paul's usually hanging around there too. He's a pretty – interesting guy. I call him the voice of reliability. If no one's let the man or talk to him, he's a pretty good guy.
0: <laughs> no, that should be, that should be a great conference.
1: Yes. I wish there was more I could tell you about what we're doing right now. Uh, Symphony and Zima AI, uh, had, like I said, we have three, we three peer, pillars of uh, data. We believe component health, which is the base, which includes your process data coming in, is very important because asset health you can have be on your process curve and never see a process, never see a bearing failure. So the three pillars: asset process, uh, asset, uh, co- component health, what I call mechanical health, uh, asset health, and process health. That feeds into this overall process optimization. Is kind of where we're at and and what we do. Uh, if anyone's interested, uh, please look us up on LinkedIn and or go to Symphony and Azima AI, and we'd be glad to. Respond.
0: Awesome. So, Don, I appreciate you coming on today. Thank you for sharing your experience. Uh, It's just not
1: me. Just let you know, this is a we have a bunch of domain experts within our company, and uh, and we really are trying to differentiate ourselves by taking domain experts and data scientists and blending them together to come up with answers people need. So it's just not me. But I I, I have a passion for this space. I always have.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's definitely not just you. <laughs> awesome. So everyone who's still listening, I appreciate you guys listening. I hope you enjoyed this one. Uh, you know, it, it's good to think at a little bit of a higher level than, you know, in reliability. I think that we sometimes tend to get stuck on the equipment side or the component level. And that's one thing that I think that we're going to start talking a little bit about more on the show is thinking about systems, thinking about asset management, just taking a, a higher look at it. Because it's not necessarily just the components. It's also about, you know, how... Sustainable is my business? How profitable is my business? How safe is my business? These pillars that are a little bit higher than just, you know, what lubricants in my bearing or what decibel levels am I getting? So I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.